<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to Stand Up Speak Up, a Canadian-made podcast highlighting important social issues and giving a voice to remarkable people. We hope you're enjoying the holidays, and if you've listened to Stand Up Speak Up before, then you've heard the voice of host Carla Stevens-Tolstoy. Usually, she's helping tell the story of others, but you might not have known that Carla herself has led a pretty interesting life. She's a Canadian born and raised entrepreneur, businesswoman, volunteer, mom, and those are just a few of her titles. Carla overcame learning disabilities and eventually landed the title of CEO at Vodafone, one of the biggest telecom companies in the world. She's proven that with hard work, nothing is out of reach. Today, we sit down with Carla to hear her story, and later her son Zach joins to talk about the mother-son team behind Stand Up Speak Up Fashion. Let's start right at the beginning and tell us a bit about your childhood. What was that like? Awesome. I had I grew up in a completely like so Canadian. I always tell people I'm the most Canadian person they could ever meet. So I grew up in a really um, amazing neighborhood, and I'm still close friends with all the kids that grew up on the same street. You know, my mom stayed home. My dad went to work downtown in a business job. Four kids, and like what, what you would expect, you know, like four unruly kids. And a mom that was like quite eccentric, but always loved us regardless of the kind of crap we'd get in. I really had like a picturesque upbringing. So after childhood, you got into your teenage years. What kind of teenager were you? I was a troublemaker. I was an angry teenager. I was just always angry. I was just very hormonal. Like reflecting back now, I do not know how my parents dealt with it. I was like the meanest teenager you could ever imagine. You know, back then they didn't really understand learning disabilities. You know, I had quite a few learning disabilities that were really nobody ever understood. So I think that created a lot of anger because school was just so much harder for me. I just found it so challenging. And I had um, a bad speech impediment for quite a few years and did a lot of speech therapy. I'm just surprised hearing that, especially after seeing, you know, the career and the life that you've led that, you know, that there was any, any issues like that at all, because it certainly doesn't appear that way. You went on to university and college and, and quite a career after. So you made it through school anyway. So how was university and college? Tell us what you did. I mean, I was part of a sorority and all that stuff, but I, I don't know, like I, I really preferred working. So I didn't love the academic side. I liked the social part and seeing my friends and hanging out. Um, but I, I wasn't really into the academic thing. <laughs> you graduated. So what, what program did you do? Oh, I took like humanities. I don't even know what it was. I can't even remember my undergrad. It was like whatever was like the easiest to get through. Okay. So you didn't do any business or anything? No, because I didn't have my math. I only have my grade nine math. Wow. So I couldn't get into any of the business programs, although I loved business and I really wanted to be in business. And I was always interviewing interesting business people. And there was always free stuff coming to our house at the sorority because I was constantly writing to companies and giving them feedback on their products. And they would send us stuff. I got like a meeting with the CEO of Kellogg's. (laughs) I got to meet interesting people because I would just write people all the time. 
and get them feedback on their marketing campaigns or ask them questions about their business. I'm just like, okay, I'm like your target market when I graduate. And this is the kind of things that I observe. And I think you could do differently to better grab hold of the market, Mm. stuff like that. Now, what would you say to someone who is that age now and maybe in the same situation, didn't do so great in school, doesn't really want to do university? Would you suggest that they just give it a give it a shot and not really do much or, you know, stay in school kids? What, what kind of advice would you give there? If they find school hard for them and they have learning disabilities, you know, I, I'm dyslexic. I would say, you know, try to find a program that interests you, but you you have to go to university because unfortunately, the hiring world is very um, traditional and conservative and they don't take a lot of chances on people that haven't gone to further their education, which is really unfortunate. Um, but that is a hiring reality. But I don't think it's the most important quality. When I ran a big company, I didn't even ask them, unless they were like an accountant, obviously, or a lawyer. <laughs> right. But for general business stuff, I had no interest whatsoever in that. That's interesting. Well, I'll come back to that when we talk a bit more about the actual career that you got into, because I'm interested now in kind of knowing how you ended up in the position that you did. But before that, let's just talk a little bit about the process that kind of led up there right after, say, you you graduated. Well, when I graduated from university to get, um, I always worked, always worked. And I always had really interesting, unique, one of a kind jobs. And usually I would rope my friends into to weird jobs. You know, like, like, <laughs> like telesales, like selling vacuums. It was like horrible. Like, I think we only lasted a few shifts. And I also worked at the CNA, the Canadian National Exhibition in the uh, whack-a-mole. I was whack-a-mole for like four summers. <laughs> and we worked like 18 hour days. You know, you had to get a job. And, and I was always interested in different and new opportunities. Like I answered an ad and roped my friends into this. To, to model fur coats. So my dad says he'll drive us all to this place. And everybody, like, I, I put high heels on, which I'm like 16, so I look ridiculous. I put makeup and everything on, and we go there. <laughs> and it's like not modeling furs. What you do is you show fur pelts to the traders that have come in for Hudson's Bay. So you have to run the floors the whole time. And then if your rack's called, you run to show that trader your pelts. You've done so many different things. I think everybody should try a whole bunch of different jobs. And you, what was this TV show that you started that was on Rogers? Yeah, so when I graduated, um, my first paying gig was a customer service rep at Bell Mobility. And um, I really wanted to still be in TV and entertainment. So with my girlfriends, we had pitched a, kind of a, a talk show that we would do, like three girls living the single life interviewing interesting people. And this was way before reality shows or any of that stuff. Very much like reality shows do now. It was like very scripted, but you didn't know. Or we would set somebody up to kind of be made fun of. It was kind of mean. Here it is right here on Chit Chat. The male and the female viewpoint on the question that everyone wants to know these days is, is the man going into the 90s with the right attitude? How many times have you cleaned the house or done the laundry? Do you do it on a regular basis? Do you feel like the 50-50 housework? Is that what you do? 50-50. I'd say I do most of it. So you know where all the cleaning supplies are? A lot of them. Gosh, you sound like an ideal husband. I think I am. So how many years have you been married now? 
Seven and a half years. Seven and a half years. And those seven and a half years, how many times would you say your husband has cleaned the house for you, done the vacuuming, done the laundry, taken on the household responsibilities? I could count them on one hand. I took like my friends that were guys and like set them up on blind dates, but then the guys would say they had a great time and we'd have the girls say that they were like total losers. <laughs> Just anything to kind of get a laugh. So you, so you called in to respond. So he had, yeah. had a couple girls calling him and they actually yeah. chose you. Yeah. And uh, he went and picked you up. Mm -hmm. And where'd you go from there? Well, he picked me up in his really cool car. And then he, I thought we were going to a really nice restaurant, but. He took you to where? A sports bar. A sports bar on a first date? Yeah. I feel with me, because I get bored easily and because I'm always, you know, looking ahead, many times I'm like ahead of the curve, which can work against you and for you, mostly against you because you're trying to create a new way of doing things, you know, or a new idea, a new approach. And that's like followed me through my whole career. Like I'm always doing something different and maybe it'll catch on even 10 years later. Like really chit chat was like one of the first kind of reality shows, scripted reality shows. So after that, fill us in a little bit briefly about your professional life on from there, because you had graduated college, you were starting to kind of get into some real business. You, you said you were with Bell uh, and you know, your work is taking you all over the world. So tell us a bit about where you've been, what you've done and the companies that you worked for. I was actually quite depressed after graduating from college because I couldn't find a job. And so my mom bought me this gym membership because she felt so sorry because I was like depressed that I couldn't get because I didn't have I didn't have all these like business degrees or marketing degrees. So people were getting cool jobs working in the advertising agencies and I just wouldn't even get in the front door. I found that extremely frustrating and I was kind of starting to feel pretty low about myself. You know, how am I going to how am I going to create my own opportunity? So when I got into Bell, what they really liked was that I had taken Mandarin classes. And so they thought that was amazing. And could I work in the call center supporting Mandarin customers? But like, of course I couldn't. I was horrible. I was like basically just past my class. I, I sucked so bad at speaking Mandarin. I can't even speak English hard. Like can you imagine dyslexic and trying to learn Mandarin? So they put me into a call center, but I was so scared of people finding out I didn't know how to speak Mandarin. <laughs> <laughs> so I would just like change whatever I thought that customer needed based on looking at their bill. I just thought, okay, the days are coming. I'm going to be discovered and I'm going to be crucified. But I, I always took work really seriously when I was training. I studied in the evenings when I got made into a uh, customer care rep. But the thing, when you go into customer care, I wanted to be in marketing or sales, but of course I didn't have the right schooling. That's sometimes I get very angry about schooling because I just think that's the biggest line of bullshit. Like what, you know, like that doesn't make a person where they go to school does not make a person. I could not get out of customer care. So I started to like work with other teams, volunteer to work after hours. And then I knew that they were having a lot of trouble getting a key client on board in the marketing and sales side to get the, the Canadian national exhibition account to go with Bell. But you know, I worked all those years managing the mole. So I knew all the owners because I'd been there since grade nine. And my old boyfriend's dad owned a part of the CNE. So I kind of knew it pretty well, you know, kind of a family business. So I went to the CNE and I didn't tell them I was a customer care rep. I just didn't mention I was a customer care rep. So they assumed I was like sales. <laughs> I had to market it to them and pitch it to them. And they were like, yeah, we're really interested. And then I went in to head office and called the other groups in 
But then the head of marketing, I lived home with my parents and he called me at home to read me out for going behind him to get this deal. He's like, all tough. Like, don't you do that again? That's inappropriate. That's not very professional. And then I was like, okay, but we got the contract. But, you know, I was like that with everything. I was constantly getting in trouble. I was constantly, I just could not work within the confines that they shoved me in. Like, I just was so ambitious and so proactive. And I didn't go to the pubs with friends. I didn't go drinking. I didn't do anything. I was completely work focused. So what happened now after Bell? Where did you go on from there? Well, by then I'd met my husband, Al, not like romantically, but I'd gotten to know him and, and um, really admired him as a person. And he left the business to join an international firm. And their first place they went to to build a new telco was China. And uh, I had known and worked with Al at Bell. And so he had recommended me and I went to live in Changsha, Hunan, which is, you know, I mean, the province is like 60 million or something of Hunan, but there were like no expats or foreigners really there. And so I had gone over there as a marketing manager and worked with some of the other telco guys on the business plans and all that stuff. And I didn't even know what a business plan was. So I had to do a lot of like research at night and I literally didn't know what somebody said to me. Okay, you have to give me all your product marketing specs. I was like, I don't know what that is. But I knew the guy from Bell that was the technology guy there that had moved to and he was super nice, Ante. And uh, I said, can you, uh, do you think you could, do you think you could help me with product marketing? He's like, yeah, I could do it for you. I'm like, that's even better. (laughs) I had no idea what it was. But because they couldn't recruit people to go there, I got like promoted up to a director position because nobody wanted to move to Hunan. So I kind of got an opportunity and I loved it and it was amazing. And it was like so much learning, lots of crying and lots of tears and lots of feeling. I've never been that far away from home before. And I didn't really understand the whole communist angle at all. I didn't know how strict they were. So I didn't realize that they, they actually did like plant a friend, a guy that became quite friendly with me, not romantically, but just became like a a local friend that I could go to the market with and do stuff with. And um, I didn't even know he was like a communist plant until I saw him at like a huge communist party. And uh, I just remember feeling like I have no friends here that can be local because I just don't know who to, who to trust. I didn't learn a lot about telecom there. I just learned a lot about working in a different culture and how hard it is to work in a different a completely different culture. And, you know, one of the, the, the situations that I kind of had a lot of learning from was we were doing an RFI to get an advertising firm. It was really hard to convince the, the Chinese people that we needed advertising. So whenever we tried to explain, like we want to have billboards or posters. So I did this whole marketing plan. I presented it to my counterpart and she then would present it to the Chinese board of directors for that province to see if it would be agreed upon, these tactics that I recommended. And so she comes back to me afterwards and she's like, yeah, no, I don't think they're ready to do anything to do with marketing right now because if people want our services, they'll just come. So like maybe like two months later, I see all these buses with the, with the, the state-run telecom with all these advertisements all over them and billboards and everything. And I said to her, oh my God, like look at what they did. They basically copied our entire marketing plan. And she's like, well, yeah, I had to give it to them. I was like, what? You gave our marketing plan to the competition? She's like, yeah, well, they're more senior in the communist. But I couldn't keep that from them. She's like, that's who I had to go present it to. 
Then we were looking for RFI for advertising agencies to just design our logo. We'd met maybe like 10 different firms. We'd also gone to Beijing and met some different advertising firms. And she wanted to pick this one this one firm. And I was like, no, they have no experience. Like they didn't even give us a portfolio. They cannot do the job. And she's like begging me, begging me. And I'm like, no, I can't. Sorry. So about two weeks later, she comes to me crying, which in the, they don't cry very much. Okay. For Chinese to cry, they're very like proud people that way. She's like, I took some money from them because they like bribed her to get the contract. And now they want to hurt me or my family if I don't give them the contract. And I was like, well, we, okay, well, how much did you, did they pay you? She's like, okay, so let's say a hundred thousand, which is a lot. I'm like, oh my God. Okay. What can we do about this? Like, do we pay them back? She's like, no, no, no. It's the triads. And they also now are going to hurt you because they know that you're the one that said no to them. So I'm like 26. So I start to cry. That's what I didn't even know. So I called home. I'm like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. I called head office and they're like, okay, just get on a plane and go to Hong Kong and just sit out there for a bit until we can figure this out. So we go to Hong Kong, we come back and we get a meeting with the mayor of Changsha and he comes to meet us and we tell him the situation with, with this group and, and, and that I can't, I don't feel comfortable being there and everybody's on high alert and we had to increase our security. And so the mayor said, okay, well, let me, let me look into this and I'll come back and let you know what I find out. So then his right hand comes to us maybe a week later and says, don't worry, it's all taken care of. Um, we executed them. We executed them in center square. They still do public executions in center square, but that's how they had dealt. That was so embarrassing for the Chinese government to have a triad threaten an expat when they try to appear like everything's amazing. And they basically took those people that were threatening us and executed them. The problem solved. So how much longer were you in, in China before you moved on? Was it Romania that was next? India came in between. I went out to India just to work on the initial marketing and sales plan. And I mean, that's just another different world. I mean, it's just was very corrupt, hard to do business. There's just a very challenging environment. I only stayed there for, you know, less than a month, maybe three weeks. And then I headed back to China and then head office said that they were looking to get a license in Romania. And could I go out there and work with the business development guys? Loved Romania because it was just felt like it was so much more freeing and more accepting. And I just felt like, oh my God, I, I hope we get this license here because I don't want to ever go back. And I never did go back actually, because we did get the license and then they just shipped my stuff to Romania. And I just fell in love with the Romanian culture, but also, also it was also another really unique, crazy, intense business situations. We had to build an entire telecom network in three months or we we're going to lose the license. Because how it works when you're trying to bid on a telecom license is it's either a beauty contest or it's like an auction of who's the highest bidder. In Romania, they did like a beauty contest. So you have to make a whole bunch of promises. Then there's a better chance you'll get the license. And we had promised we could build an entire network in three months, among a million other things. Did you succeed? We did. It was really like hard and tough and working like 18, 20 hour days and also trying to staff up and recruit people and get them to leave their jobs and other places of the world and come work in Romania for this startup. And it was just like literally literally insane. So then after Romania, I did sales and marketing there and loved it. It was really an exciting time. And then we won the license in the Czech Republic. 
I felt that I could kind of own that operation, that finally I could have my own operation, um, which I really wanted. I wanted to build it from the bottom up and create a really um, forward thinking business model because we were the third operator going in there and it was a very difficult times there and very difficult to get the license and everybody was trying to sue us and everybody was trying to discredit us and the media was horrible about us. And so we kind of went into a full on a business war zone. And by 2002, you had been promoted to COO. Yes. Yes. I mean, I really was like a CEO, but they just couldn't hand out the title because don't forget, I was pretty young. I was under 30, a female, but I was pretty relentless because nobody thought we could achieve what we did. And we did it. And, and I believe we achieved it because one of my most, like, I think the biggest talent I have, the biggest thing I bring to the table is I'm amazing at talent. Like I can sniff out talent anywhere. Like I can sniff out who, who can move up quickly and become a superstar. Who are the, who, who are the diamonds in the rough? I don't know. It's a sixth sense I have. So I've always been really strong at building amazing teams and really, you know, letting them blossom. I mean, I, I probably was very much a challenging boss because I was very aggressive and opinionated. And we, I believe in thinking out of the box. So if anybody gave me a traditional idea, I would just like say no. Like they'd say the way to get Carla to prove an idea is say, never been done. <laughs> First time ever. And we would do like really outlandish stuff there. Like we once took every employee, we had 2000 employees and we created a citywide, uh, an obstacle course citywide for every employee to learn what our values were. And I mean, it was like massive. We had to take everybody to the call centers. We put everything on to emergency. We did that kind of stuff a lot. We had like such, such renowned parties that people would try their hardest to get into our parties. And we had to have so much double security because we had like the ba- we had like crazy parties. I'm talking, we took over a whole shopping mall that had just finished being built and was empty and made every single store a different experience. I was really into employee stuff and employee engagement. And, and I went back just a couple of years ago. And so we wanted to do a, a survey about what are people's memories of working at Oscar. And we got about 600 people to do the survey online, like ex-employees. Mm-hmm. And probably the rate that we got back out of like five was like 4.7. To this day, people's memories, because everybody worked really hard, but we were generous and we shared the wealth and we were made sure that everybody felt valued and they had purpose. Everybody understood our goals. Everybody understood we were trying to improve. That's why we were able to achieve so much success for so many years running. We together made it happen because we believed. We challenged conventions. We sacrificed. That's how it happened. When I left that business after it was sold, I had a really bad depression. I cried so much. I was so, I was really sad. I loved that place. I loved it. When I found that we got sold, I almost collapsed. But then when you, you're eventually CEO or you were CEO of Vodafone, did you bring that type of stuff with you? 
Yeah, but you know, by then you're going into transition and we were really out of the box. Like I'm talking, we were extreme mavericks. We did everything really differently. So it was very hard for such a huge company like that to understand how we could be. We were so different. I I can't even tell you. Like every single touch point we did, we wanted to make unique. So like our IVR, we made it like a comedian that would do the do the IVR and make it funny. Like everything we did had to be super, super unique. And that required many of the executives and the employees to be very obsessive. And everybody was very obsessed with making sure we were always cool or always different. Um, I remember going into the collections department one time and, and thinking how grueling their job must be. So we turned in the collections customer care area into like an airport lounge because that's such a stressful job. And we also wanted to be good at collections, not like be sh- like assholes, people that have no money, be a little bit more accommodating and not have stupid rules for the sake of rules. So we removed anything that didn't make sense. You know, a lot of people are like, well, if we do this, then maybe somebody will cheat. I was like, well, you know what? We're not going to make everybody suffer because 10% cheat. And we're not going to ever do contracts because if somebody doesn't want to be with our company because we suck, then they should leave. I'm not going to ever hold anybody to a contract. Because what does that say about us? We always try to be different with every single thing. And while I was there, I also had a stroke. And I didn't want anybody to find out about it because I was up for getting the finally the CEO position. And I didn't want the board or anybody to find out. But of course, they found out. So they said to me, well, you're pregnant. You've had a stroke. Like, I think we have to wait a year to look at that promotion because you don't know how things are going to work out. I spent like two weeks in the hospital with my stroke. I didn't care. I I just put myself in on the weekends, but I went to work from Monday to Friday and put myself in for weekends. Promised that the company would achieve even better results. And if it did, they would give me the title and it did. Wow. Because I was like relentless. I was like, I am like, this is my baby. I don't want to ever lose this company. So you mentioned the pregnancy. Where does your family fit into this? Your marriage, you have a son. Zach, where did all that fit in on the timeline of what we've talked about now with you living over there and coming back to Canada? Well, I mean, that was one of the issues. It really didn't. Al lived in Romania at the time. He was, he was working mostly in the Romanian property, so we'd just come home for weekends. Um, it didn't. You know, Zach was raised by nanny until he was five or six. I was didn't even spend any birthdays with them because those were always board, board meetings always fell on his birthday. At the time, it was so secondary for me. I took like one week maternity or something. And then when we, I left and we decided to, to take some years off and retire, we moved to Florida Keys for a year, um, which was such a change of pace. And we had moved from Europe with our two Great Danes. I had never really been a mom before. And I remember just sitting there looking at him and he's just like looking at me and I'm like, oh, what, oh my God, I have to make you breakfast now. I have to do your laundry. <laughs> and I was just like, oh my God, look at this little man, you know? We were building a house in Toronto so we were just in the keys, just hanging out because the house wasn't ready and trying to decompress and like build a family unit, become a family. Right. So that was kind of that, that phase of your life now is, which it's kind of been put on hold, like you said, with, with the nanny. Now it was, you're becoming a mom for, for real. Yes. And I just remember Zach and I going like bike riding the first few times and me thinking, oh my God, he's such a great little man. Like he's so cool and he's so polite and he's so... I remember thinking like, he's so awesome. And I almost got almost addicted to him, you know, because I hadn't been with him. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, I love him so much. I just want to be with him 24 seven. I think having success so young for myself, it's really been hard to age 
because my life was so full of excitement and adrenaline. And then I moved to Florida and it's totally calm, which was okay for a bit, but hard, got boring. And I think I try to crave that with the podcast. I think that's where the podcast came from. That's what I want to ask about now. So tell us where where you are now, basically, where all that came from. You know, the, the clothing line, Stand Up, Speak Up, the podcast. Tell us about that. Well, when I came back, I didn't have a job, of course. So I connected with an old colleague of mine that was head of HR at Oscar, and she was living in New York. And we started, we launched a company um, called Toki that was about helping couples better connect. You know, so we thought originally it was going to be like some type of board game. But then as we started to understand the internet world, we realized, you know, apps were getting more popular on the web. So we kind of built a website around it, but it was hard to get traffic. And it's just, it's very hard because it's like a, it was like a wild, wild west. And it was like all trying to engage couples. And then we built an app and that was, it was actually a great app and it worked really well, but it was hard to get momentum with it. That was challenging and depressing, you know, because I had been used to being successful and like that took me for a humbling experience where I, I think I almost had a breakdown. Like I just was like, holy shit, why is this not working? I, I'm a loser. I can't figure this out. Like the only reason I was successful was because I had great people. I, I obviously didn't have the talent, you know? So I just kept thinking, well, I can't really achieve anything because I don't have these, I don't have my team and my team is what made me successful. And then I went to the, to the AVN, the um, adult entertainment um, awards in Vegas with my sister and, two other colleagues and um, because a big part of our site was, was sexual communication, which was kind of boring for me because I wanted it to be more, a little bit more deep, but that's all the couples wanted to play. And I was kind of like, oh, I don't know if I can go here. So we went to the AVN conference and met with like everybody in the industry, you know, the porn industry. And, and it was kind of like demotivating because I just realized how messed up it was. And it made me almost feel like dirty in a weird way. Like, I don't want to be a part of this industry. Like I didn't go to school or, or go on and work for me to like, to be involved in this. But after that coming back, I was like, I think I want to get out of this whole couples thing. I just, it doesn't excite me. I worked at the Toronto sex conference, whatever, and did a, like a facilitation. And I was just like, I don't, I just looked down the audience and I thought, what the, f- I, just, I don't want to be doing this. Well, we're just going to put this handcuffs on you because you look like the guy that should be, we're not going to give you the key. This is not my, I'm not learning anything that I want to be learning and I'm not engaged and I don't really care about hearing people's weird fetish stories. Like, I know that sounds horrible, but just wasn't where, just where I wanted to be. So then we moved into personality profiling and people being able to do interactive quizzes where they could learn about themselves. And I really loved that product. It was amazing. We had so many amazing components. Once again, it's really hard to have an app because when an upgrade happens, your app many times doesn't work. So it's like, it's like an endless cost. So if you don't, ha- if you can't code, it's a nightmare. Everything stuffs breaks and then a new phone comes out. Like it was just constant. It was constant money going out the door and hard to monetize. Now I'm really depressed at this point. Can't even get out of bed. So then I read in the paper, they're looking for people to volunteer St. John's ambulance with their dogs to like, and I was like, you know what? Okay, why don't I do that? And I called and four months later, I got a call back saying, yes, would you like to come in and get your dogs tested? And so Al and I did that together. And then they said, is there certain facilities like you'd like to go to? And I said, I'd like teens. And I didn't really understand this whole world of teens at risk, nothing. Like I was completely, like I grew up in like perfect home. So I started, and then I started connecting with these teens and I realized all the challenges they have against. And like, it just, 
it was like this whole new huge awareness. Do you know what I mean? And that's what started the whole process of learning about this whole world of teens and human trafficking. Like I was completely ignorant. And I lived in countries where human trafficking was out of control in Romania and Czech Republic. And I mean, can you imagine? And I was totally ignorant then. I didn't even care. I was like just running a big company. And all I could think about was like, how big is our party going to be? And how much more revenue can we produce? And I never thought about that. As you learned about those issues, that how did that uh, translate into a podcast for you and the, the clothing line? In Romania, we launched a clothing line called My X, which was a clothing line of clothes that you could hold your phones, like pockets were specially made for your phone and all that stuff. So I'd already had an experience with the clothing line. So the clothing line came from was I wanted some way to express some of the issues that were happening with the teens. So I worked with some of the teens on this one design and then I wanted to make it into a blanket for them so they could have it in their backpacks and they could have like a security blanket type thing almost. And then from that led to like, what about if we helped raise awareness and people could wear this stuff and we could work with different artists and different people on helping to um, like almost like art therapy perspective. And that's kind of where it got started. And then the podcast came after the clothing idea? The podcast came because while I was working on the clothing line, I was meeting and talking to all these really interesting people. And I was like, oh, I I wish that that other people could hear what they say. And I wasn't really thinking podcast. Then I was just like thinking, oh, you know, maybe they could do a video or something, but it was hard to get people to do videos. And, And podcasts were just starting to get popular, but not not really. They were, they were there, but like, I didn't really understand much about them. So I started to listen to podcasts because somebody said, what about doing a podcast? And I was like, oh, I don't know. That seems like really hard, you know? <laughs> so I listened to a podcast and, and I was thinking, I wonder if I could do a podcast. You know, I was like, how, how do you even do a podcast? Like, how does that get started? During this, I had gone to see a therapist because I was like, oh, you know, maybe I'm just like, maybe I need to figure out what I want because I feel like I don't want to live in the past. I want to live in the present and I don't want to be living in the future either. (laughs) Interesting. He said to me, you're addicted to people's stories and all your life is just always about interacting with people and hearing their stories. Like everything is about being different and doing stories. And I thought that's probably why I do the podcast. It probably fills some hole that I don't get to do right now because I don't get to live around crazy places in the country. Like when I look at my friends and my colleagues that I work with in different countries and I see them living in like Qatar or Saudi or Iran or Bangladesh, anywhere, I get super envious. You know, I'm not thinking, oh, that must be hard work for them. Like they're so lucky. They're so lucky they get to have so many cool life experiences on a daily basis. And when I talk with them, they're like, Carl, you're so lucky you don't have to do this. But I don't see it like that. I'm just envious of seeing their posts on crazy experiences, you know? So the podcast for me, I think, is my trying to hold on to some something, something adventurous, something that's interesting, because I really, I really bore myself. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't I don't really think about all the stuff I've been able to do or learn along the way because I'm always looking for my future experiences. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. 
Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. If I asked you, what is your outlook now for the, for the future, for the next few years even? Would you, do you expect any new projects would pop up? Yeah, I would, I would love to keep doing, you know, what I'm doing, but also add to that maybe a little more, no, like maybe rise it up a few notches adrenaline wise and, and expansion wise. And I would like to do maybe more investigative stuff, maybe with like people that can help and be part of a, maybe of a brand that can help bring it together because it's hard as an independent and the store, I, I also like to use it to help. You know, we have our 3,000 acts of kindness. So I like to try to make a change. Like, I, I think that I can't, if I don't think I'm having purpose or I'm not making a difference or I'm not improving so- something somehow, I get really down on myself. Right. Well, you, yeah, you mentioned the 3,000 acts of kindness. That's uh, that's a big, I think, a big way to show what the store is all about. You know, it is a store, but you are yourself are getting out there and just giving back in whatever way you can. And there's a list of things that you do, whether it be volunteering or donating to those less fortunate, you know, it's, you must be happy that you have that opportunity to do that. Yeah. But I feel like it's not enough. Like, I feel like I just, it's so superficial. I just touch the surface. I just feel like, I don't know. You know what? I think I miss, I think I miss, I think I really liked finding Shelly. Cause I really, I really enjoyed telling her story and, and helping to change awareness. But I, I did like that it was a little bit more engaging and interesting. And I don't know. And I also try not to get too, sometimes I get so frustrated with the system that, and I just feel like I'm not, I'm not doing anything to change the system. Like for me, I just want to get in there and like rework stuff and redesign stuff and just like treat it like a, like a company, like, okay, how can we make it work better? Like, how can we make, the social justice system work better, more efficiently. You know, how can we help the foster system to be a safer place for kids? So all this said, what would you say you want to be remembered for? I probably would like, from an ego standpoint, my legacy to be that I challenged the norm, that I never took the easy way out, I guess, that I had a strong moral and that, you know, I did what I believed I mean, I had good integrity, but I would say that, you know, I challenged the norm. You're listening to a special edition of Stand Up, Speak Up, as we hear the story behind host Carla Stevens Tolstoy and the Stand Up, Speak Up brand. Stand Up, Speak Up fashion is founded by a mother-son team, Carla and her now 16-year-old son, Zach, who joins in and tells us how Stand Up, Speak Up fashion came about. Well, it loosely started with another company we, we had created called Lake Life, originally Friends of Lake of the Woods. It was a clothing company for our local cottage town. So it was local designs uh, of the lake. And basically part of the profit would go to any neighboring charities, so like uh, shelters or uh, water sustainability charities. And then kind of as the summer was ending, my mom had finally reached her dream of having a clothing company. And she's like, oh, there's got to be a way to sustain this, not just for these two months in one year. So we kind of thought about it and eventually we came to the conclusion of, of using the city. So using an urban environment, uh, whether it was, um, you know, uh, street youth or homelessness, uh, drug abuse, alcohol abuse. And then from there, we kind of branched off with things like uh, uh, murdered and raped indigenous women 
And then eventually we started off with LGBTQ, although now we're kind of focusing more on the street youth and then mental health. So it kind of became in a sense of wanting to just make it marketable for a, a larger audience. Right. And you, you, like you said, the the earlier company, you kind of you were giving back to the community anyway, and you're doing that with uh, with stand up speak up now as well. A huge component of it is actually using, you know, the, the profits and what you guys do to actually give back. Uh, so tell tell me a bit about why that was important to you to to actually have those causes behind everything that you do with the clothing line. Well, I think that, you know, in the past and nowadays, everything has to be a brand. Although most teenagers and youth will admit that, you know, they're not, they don't like brands, but that's all they really wear, whether it's joggers nowadays or Nike shoes or whatever else is, you know, fresh. And I just always thought, what's the, what's the point of wearing something that doesn't mean anything? But if you have a clothing line with something behind it, uh, something that, you know, it's more near and dear to my heart, which maybe is a bit biased as why we tackle those issues. But it's also issues that, you know, at the time when we first created, they weren't spoken about. Like nowadays, mental health in these last two years is huge. But, you know, two years ago, it wasn't that. It was like a small little thing that some people believed was real and others simply passed off as being not real. It's really interesting that now mental health is a big thing. Youth are more interested and people are more interested in it. However, you know, now I think we're going towards more the kind of street youth and uh, homelessness and teens at risk kind of route because, again, it's, it's bringing about issues that people don't talk about, and that just happens to be a, a big one, a one that affects my mother and I. My mom, as I'm sure she said, she goes and volunteers with kids in a, in a facility who have done various crimes, and just to actually see that life and, and to see it, you know, people are less fortunate than you. Mm-hmm. Actually, that was a good point that you made about the the logos and the brand. Everyone, you know, there's all these big brand names that people will pay top dollar for to have some, like you said, meaningless logo on their shirt. But you guys are actually, if no one's seen this clothing line, they're not familiar with uh, the Stand Up Speak Up clothing. You actually have designs on the clothes. That's how you're communicating that message and getting the word out. So can you tell us a bit? Uh, tell us a bit about where you're getting those designs from. Who you're working with to actually create these uh, pieces of clothing and other articles that you sell yeah so we work with various designers i'm an artistic person but i'm not very good at drawing or painting or anything like that so i think my mother and i we do a lot of the conceptual ideas and then we freelance to some people who we just think are talented artists they're able to create designs and also we talk to people who have had their own um issues with either drug abuse or domestic violence and we allow them to create designs that are you know near and dear to their heart so it, you know, it creates a more personal touch for the artist. So it, it's it's more like you're wearing a piece of art than just wearing a new design. So do both you have uh, kind of equal? Do you work on everything equally together, or does one person specialize in a certain part of the operations of the line? And someone, you know, tell us a bit about that. How's the the work between you two? Yeah, so I would say my mom is definitely more on the business end. She has the experience in that, whether it's the you know financial aspects of it. Although that is my main interest. Um, her main interest is the advocacy, uh, which is a big part of I, what I work in and things like the actual designs themselves, um, the way they're structured. So more on the artistic front and more of the marketing front where she focuses on the, you know, the business end. Right. And you've got this whole, the, the spinoff now, like the podcast and tell us a bit about the, the actual stand up, speak up blog website. You've got all kinds of articles and uh, an outlet for people too, to basically come in and share their stories. So you really expanded beyond simply the clothing line telling a story. You know, you're doing a lot of good things for these causes. Yeah, I think that's that's important because 
it, I feel that if we didn't do that, then I'm not saying it's bad, but you, you, I, I feel you, you'd go out of touch, you know? I mean, the reason that we're able to work with designs that I think are relevant is because we're both, you know, in one way or another, in an aspect of the world. I work with uh, a comp- uh, organization called Rock, which is largely known for their big sister and big brother program. I work in a new mentality group, which is a whole group basically about raising awareness. And so I get to see, you know, what the standard Canadian government is doing on a daily basis, what volunteers are doing, what the kind of route is going towards. So I kind of gear our designs to be more relevant. And I feel that if we didn't do that, then, you know, in a year, our designs about teens at risk, they could become offensive. You know, things like we're living in a PC culture nowadays, we have to be careful with everything we say. So it's good to just be on that front line and to see what is really happening so that we can try and reflect that in our clothing. Yeah, and you definitely do a good job. And I know um, one of the concerns your mom spoke about before is just not wanting to come across as fake because this could easily be a thing where you, you don't want to be necessarily hijacking a cause and saying here we're, we're you know we have human trafficking awareness on our clothing but that's it we're just making a profit from it you guys are are way out there showing all of the actual work that you're doing which i think is great yeah yeah uh you know especially for my mother's podcast stan speak up where she tackles various issues in fact she did the whole nine-part series of finding shelly de roche the sex worker in London, London, Canada. And it is a business, you know, it is, I I would probably argue that more. My mother is more the advocate when it comes to rights and as I am too, but you know, at the center, it is a business, but the core of a good business is is having, you know, a good theme. You know, we're not from a place like Ralph Lauren or Nike or anything like that, where we already have a foundation. We can just, you know, create whatever we want and get, and get money. We have to start with something and hopefully, hopefully build that up. And although we've been trying to target youth, people like my age group, so like 15 to 20 and even older, you know, it's difficult nowadays because like I was saying, all they want are the brand names. So we're kind of stuck in this situation of who do we market to? And we're, as we kind of develop and we're learning, the people that, are, that really want to buy this stuff are people who feel they want to be in touch with times. So although we'd love to try and get the teenagers to be part of this and be the new movement, we find those people like their mothers It's people um, who, you know, who have some sort of affiliation volunteering or some sort of affiliation with mental health or teens at risk. So people who are in the environment or people who have a genuine interest. So I think it's kind of a bit, it's kind of a bit of a shock to us now. Yeah. Well, I think that you've been a really big advocate for kind of saying, you know what, teens are not as self-aware as I think. They're not exactly. And, and the thing about that is, Nowadays, every teen will pride themselves on being PC, you know, not being racist, not being sexist, except anybody, transgender, pansgender, black, white, it doesn't matter anymore to us, majority in Western America, especially in Toronto. But the fact of the matter is, is much like teenagers, we care about ourselves. You know, we're very me, 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 me. So even though we're presented with these issues, and although we may say, oh, it's terrible, it's awful, yeah, I'll donate money, blah, 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 most of the time they don't because it's not directly... It's not hurting us, you know? If we don't donate this money or don't buy that shirt, we don't really know what the consequence might be. And there might not be a consequence, so we don't care because our first priority is ourselves. So it's, it's a hard thing with teens because adults, that's, it's going to look great when you have teens who are promoting all this self-aware, all this um, awareness about these social issues. But it's, it's so hard to get them on board. And so I think you have to go a little bit older, which is, you know, sad to say. But also what I think we're trying to find, especially 
more locally in Oakville, is that to make it matter to them. I mean, Oakville is a hotspot for human trafficking for any youth, and it's not at all talked about. I mean, there's a hotel right across from the place I volunteer at, also the one of the OPP facilities, that is just notorious for human trafficking. So it's bringing elements like that, uh, especially into my school community where I'm trying to get you know kids in my class or just kids in my school on board because these issues can affect them. They act like they can't because you know they're rich or they're white or whatever and they come from these you know happy homes with parents who aren't divorced and blah 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 and everything's perfect for them. But that might not always be the case. It's just showing them the other side of, of the world I think is important. And I think that's where the the type of media and marketing that you're doing online plays such an important role, especially the podcast, because like you say, these issues, we all hear about them. And of course we think they're, yeah, that's bad. But if it's not directly affecting our lives, it can easily just be forgotten about. But uh, even me editing the podcast, I've had so many moments of hearing interviews that Carla has done that have really just shocked me because many of us really just don't know the real truth about what's going on with all this stuff. So to have, say, the podcast which is funded thanks to the clothing line, which is actually sharing these stories. And then, you know, it gets that uh, awareness spread even more through telling those stories, I think is a, is a great, uh, is a great setup that you've got. Yeah. Yeah. I very much agree. And just coming back to the point of just, you know, making it more notable. We're also living in a time where, you know, a lot of movies nowadays, just coming back, I'm a big film guy. And I think, you know, a lot of people go to movies for inspiration or just for entertainment. And we're living in a, in a time where there are movies that are, are, are low budget and they're, and they're being made about these issues. You know, take Moonlight, which won you know, the Oscar two years ago, or this year's Florida Project, all about the unseen homeless poverty within, uh, within a strip of hotels near Orlando, Florida, which is a big Oscar contender this year. And it's, just, it's bringing these issues be more relevant. And it's showing them in a very natural light, which I think is important. You know, it's, not, it's not romancing them. You know, it's not making it... It's just, it's just giving you the facts of what's happening. And I think that's really important. It's just that you get the facts and you can you kind of construct your own opinion of what you think and how you might want to help. Mm-hmm. And I think that's it's one of the great things about the the internet and the way things are these days is it's a lot more easier to get these things out there. Whereas years ago, a movie like that, a low-budget movie, most of us would never have even heard of it because it's not in the theater. You had no way to see it. But now with the internet, you know, anyone can do that and upload it and we can get that awareness moving a lot more swiftly than it would have before. I would say that Florida Project, the new Sean Baker did, and uh, Chris, his his script writer, was unbelievably, it was so, it seemed so real. And uh, I just, you know, I mean, I, I saw it with Zach at TIFF and it was really just so well done. It's and very honest. It's very honest. Yeah, very authentic, very honest. And and when I watched it, I just thought, oh, that's like, that is like how I would like, you know, our brand to be. Like when I was just watching it, I'm like, that really inspired me to keep working on this stuff. Because some days, you know, I have bad days. Zach knows where I'm like, God, this is a lot of work. I don't know if it's really, is it making enough of a difference? And then I see. Or, you know, especially at my school, I get friends who are like, oh, that's really great what you're doing. That's awesome. Yeah, I love to buy a shirt. And then they come back the next day and they just, they've just bought the new $100 Logan Paul t-shirt off his, you know, YouTube website. And it's like, we, they're, they're very brand. Like you said, yeah, you said like, it's really hard to get people to not focus on, on brand. And that's where I think Zach was just explained to me, you know, teens are going through trying to figure out who they are. And so it's hard to kind of introduce them to something that's maybe so uncomfortable for them. 
But as people age, they, they're looking to have more awareness and be more relevant and understand kind of what the issues are. Um, so I think that Zach sits on a council right now. Maybe you could talk about your youth. Yeah, so the, the council I sit on, it's a complete youth council. It has some adult facilitators, but it is, it is primarily um, uh, youth like myself, mainly 15 to 18 years old. I mean, the fact is, you know, a lot of kids are just there for their volunteer hours, but a lot of them do care. And it's, it's interesting because although I feel we're doing things, you know, it's working in a very bureaucratic environment. You know, it's working in a place where although we as youth make decisions, those decisions still have to be approved by not only our youth our adult facilitators, but then their bosses and then, you know, up the chain of command. So I, it's this kind of situation where it's, it's, it seems to be youth helping youth, but it's really, you know, how far can youth go? You know, we're, we are living in a world where we can be more, I guess, R-rated, so to speak. You know, we can talk about these issues more freely and more openly, but it's still hard to really talk to someone. My school, for example, uh, I won't name it, but it's a very small school. And uh, I'm going to be completely candid here. I want to be completely okay. open about my school. I have okay. no what they say about it. But they, in the last year, have really been pushing for a mental health initiative a lot. We do this thing called Mindful Minute. Every morning, we close our eyes for a minute and we just breathe. That's all it is. It's just trying to clear our mind. And, you know, we've had speakers come in. But the thing that our school is treating it like, and I've noticed this in other schools, is they're treating it like, like they're an alien. Like they're just looking at mental health and dissecting it. As if all their students don't have any relation to mental health. None of them might even be suffering from mental health or suicide, uh, suicide, suicide, suicidal thoughts or anything like that. It's all as if we're studying people who are lesser than us. And I think that's something that's really, that's really terrible and still is a big part of everything. I mean, everyone just thinks people with mental health or people with suicidal thoughts, they have to be people going through terrible lives. They have to have these terrible things happen to them. It can't just be, you know, a natural occurrence or a genetic deficiency. Or just a teen that's struggling. Or just a with teen that's change. struggling. Exactly. Just someone who's, you know, going, growing up. Yeah, going through puberty and having it. Going through time. puberty. Mm hmm. I Sorry, go ahead. I know, yeah, you, this uh, this is an important topic to you, and you actually you have a, a certificate in mental health safety and suicide prevention first aid. Is that correct? Yeah, and I um, I took those courses. I took the first one with my mother, the the first aid, and I I really enjoyed it because it was, not only was it first aid, but it was also just learning how to have a conversation. You know, how to truly interact with someone and learn more about them. To, you know, to get to a deeper subject and to get what they might be suffering. Or, you know, how you can help them or how anybody can help them. Clarifying the issues that they're going through. And then I took the suicide prevention uh, on my own. And it was similar, but it's also just showing that it, it can affect anybody. You know, it, it really, really can. These, yeah. It's just, although we're getting more open, I still feel like we're not. I still feel like everyone's really, really closed off. And they don't want to talk about these things. And they, especially suicide, no one wants to talk about suicide, especially their own ideas of suicide. And it's just, I don't know, it's terrible. It sucks. And I, I don't want to change it. And I want to help. And I'm trying to do that through Sam Speak of Fashion. But it's hard. It's difficult because, you know, it's like one person trying to change the world. It's not possible. So also... Well, I think that you just, it's going to be in smaller steps than we originally No, I know. Thought. I'm not changing the world, but it's no, just. No, but I mean, you know, like, I think. It's getting the conversation started. And I think if you can help, like, if you can just open a conversation with someone, sometimes that's a victory, but it's. Well, just the, the first aid itself. I mean, everyone knows about just standard first aid, but why don't we do mental health first aid? 
why don't we do suicide prevention? A friend of mine, um, he was giving me some flack about it because he, he does, he's a stand first aid and he didn't think that anything like mental first aid or suicide prevention first aid was important. He thought, well, you know, people should only worry about their physical body. They can deal with their, you know, mentals with a, with a therapist or whatever. It doesn't matter. It's just mental health. Who cares? And, and I said to him, you know, well, the first aid, it's not, you're not saving the person. That's not your job. The job is giving them tools to help themselves, to get better. You know, it's giving them tools to talk with a therapist, to, you know, make new life decisions, to make better life decisions. So I think mental health per se and suicide prevention per se is something everyone should be a part of. It, like it should be mandatory. It should be mandatory. does it in, in school. And the, the other one is that should be mandatory in school, I think, is the whole um, training on... Oh, sexual assault. Yeah. Sexual harassment. I mean, that's obviously become a huge, huge deal in these last two weeks, two or three weeks, you know, Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey and now pretty much everybody, Matt Lauer, uh, Griggs on the sports net, um, sports center guy. And it's just, sorry, what question, yeah. sorry, how was it really upset you when all this came out? Like you were really depressed for a few days, not like depressed in the, I just mean you were, you were sad and disappointed. Yeah. Hollywood. And it was, and what, what, I mean, Hollywood impact on you. Yeah. I'm, dreams of being an actor so to speak and so I'm just kind of starting to get a bit into the industry doing auditions and meeting various casting directors and directors and things like that and so far I've experienced uh, pretty good things but it's just it's the idea that these people can get away with these things it's just it's not only that but it's also with all these people with all these floodgates all these terrible things going on you know it's hard to know you know what 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 is true what isn't true and how much can you really trust someone it's it's just so for me it was personally hard to believe that it can, it took this long for all of these people to come out after twenty years thirty years of yeah. sexual harassment the fact that just this one event of Harvey Weinstein why didn't why didn't it happen when you know Bill Cosby came yes. out what three years ago four years ago I think even longer maybe even longer than that it was just him you didn't hear about anybody yes. else so what was the chain of events yes was it because it was a top dog like Harvey Weinstein. I mean, I think it's great. I think it's great that people are coming out and, you know, if it's changing the industry and if it's changing just any industry. But the fact that you can just do those kinds of things is, it's terrible. Why don't we talk a bit about your childhood, I suppose, this uh, the start and see kind of where a person like you comes from. What was your, how would you describe your childhood and, and you know, any life-defining moments along the way? My childhood? Oh, um, Privileged. I guess would be would be the first one. I was born into a wealthy environment with loving parents. What? No, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> what? Nope. Just, say, just say you're born into love. You don't have to say like I know, but I'm just saying like not, you were born on the streets, of course. No, I know. I'm just saying like I think a big reason for why I care is because there's this unearned. You know, it's, 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 I, I feel I have something that I've not earned. Okay. You yes, know, it's not. Okay. You know, my parents worked for 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 what they have. I didn't work for it. I just happened to be a part of it. So I feel that you know I have in a sense to prove my own. And so if I can help to give back to people, maybe not less fortunate, but just give back to any person, you know, it makes me feel at least that maybe part of this, you know, wasn't for nothing. I wasn't just one of those, you know, snobs who ends up going to some, you know, university and becomes a banker and doesn't care about anybody else. I think it's a terrible person to be. and It's not a person I wanted to be. And growing up, you know, I was only child. I have two half, uh, two half brothers, but they're, they're much older than me. So they're more like, more like uncles. And I grew up in a fairly business environment. My parents are both uh, business business people. That was their entire life was really business, still is. But I think I grew up with that idea of, you know, with, with money in mind, with profit in mind, with, you know, 
gender, you know, marketing or as my mother's side or anything like that. But then I also grew up with the, with the privilege side and the point that, you know, I want, I want to not just be seen as, you know, a rich kid. That's not what I want to be seen as, whether it's bad or not. I don't know, but it, it was just, it was an underlying aspect of me. And, you know, my mom used to tell me when I was younger, always used to tell me, you know, money can go any day. And maybe that stressed me out a little bit, but it's true. So I, I don't want to be relying on things that maybe I don't have in you know a year or in two years I'd rather just try and forge my own path and if you know the, the sooner I get started I think the more self-fulfilled I will become later on or at least I hope it'll end up that way why is it so hard for teens to feel good about themselves I mean like and they become they become vulnerable to predators out there and and you know, because so many teens have so many insecurities because it's part of growing up. It, it is. It, it really is. And I think, you know, to me, it just seems like more of an obvious, obvious thing now, especially with the internet and social media, where you're, you're constantly being shown images that you delegate as being better than the life you're living, even if they're just your friends. And you know exactly what life they're living. But yet when you see their images on Instagram, it looks 10 times better than yours. And we're also just, we're being faced with a lot of, I guess, being faced with looking in the mirror, you know, things like selfies, things like Snapchat, where we're constantly seeing our own reflection, our own, our own faces. And we're seeing them from our, from our perspective. It's the same thing when, you know, when you hear your own voice or when you watch yourself on film and you're like, Oh my God, I can't believe my voice sounds like that. Or, Oh my God, I can't believe I look like that. Blah, 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 blah. I look so fat. Or, I look so skinny. And we're constantly using things like Snapchat or Instagram. Where we're just seeing ourselves over and over again. And then our other selves. So not only do we see ourselves and start to notice imperfections, maybe we even make them up because, you know, we always are insecure, especially growing up. But we're also seeing other people's lives that we're saying are better than our own. So there's these two things that are just coming at us full front. And it's just, it's terrible. It's, it's tearing us apart. And although I would argue that internet and social media is beneficial because connecting us, it's allowing us to become more educated. It's also just, I think it's, it's bringing our self-esteem down and bringing our stress up. I mean, Starting grade nine, I, you know, I have kids in my school. They are so stressed about what university they're going to get into. Like, I have to get 95. I have to get 100. You know, I have to blah, 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 blah. I have to get the best marks I can possibly can so I can go do this, so I can go do that, so that I can make money and be successful in life. And it's just these terrible things that, you know, kids are going through nowadays where they're, just, they're losing their childhood. It's, it's completely on a phone and it's completely in school books. And I don't know, it's just, it's terrible. It, it's, a, it's a life that just seems to be fading away. So of all the issues that we've touched on in the, the last half an hour, what would you give as general advice, whether it be to people your own age or younger or parents of teenagers or anyone in general to kind of put in place the types of changes that you would like to see? You know, what would you say to people that they should, how should they be living their life to make that happen? That's a tough one. Because I know most standard people would think, well, you know, imagine putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And although I think that's true, I don't think kids nowadays have enough imagination to do that. So I think it's more just, you know, just just tell yourself to just care. You know, like when you're out walking one day or whatever, doing something, and you see a homeless man, just just look at him and pay attention to him. Notice him. Maybe even go talk to him. You don't have to give money to him or buy something, although that'd be nice if you did. But just, just maybe talk to him or just at least acknowledge him. Acknowledge the fact that, you know, this bubble you've created for yourself through social media, through the people you interact with, through your small community, try to break free from that. Try to see what else there is in the world. Try to see if there are people who are suffering. Um, and, you know, try to realize that, you know, maybe 
maybe your life isn't as good as you think it is, or maybe it's better than you think it is. And it's, it's just getting that different perspective. I think it can be beneficial for you and it can be beneficial for people that you could help later down the road. I mean, if you can just help one person, that's, that's, that's amazing. I mean, one person is so important. I think we you know, you'll always forget about that. You know, it's, it's all, we want to get the suicide rate down to 0% because it's the only good percent to get. But if you can just stop one person from doing a deadly action, that's a huge success. I mean, think about like a one person life. They, they had a childhood, they grew up, they had, a, they had jobs, they, you know, they grew old. They, they, that's all the potential that one person has. So if you can just help one person, that's, that's really amazing. Thanks for listening to this special edition of Stand Up Speak Up. We appreciate your support over the past year and wish you the best in 2018. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.